You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. ago or a couple of months ago that a daring parishioner came up to me after a service in which we shared in the Apostles' Creed. And he said, Bob, you know, that's just dogma. None of that can be proven. And I essentially agreed with him that it is dogma. Yet it is a dogma that is rooted in some historic realities, some of which is verified. And yet, it is dogma. I want you to think this morning as we begin this series of messages about faith questions, what is the dogma that you believe in? And why? I would suggest to us that it's pretty hard to live life without it, without some kind of a dogma that we adhere to, a set of beliefs, a set of principles, a philosophy of life, regardless of what that dogma may be. Dogmas come, do they not? In all shapes and sizes and packages, there's religious dogma. There's scientific dogma, there's educational dogma, there's uh, corporate dogma, there's American dogma, there's military dogma, there's the dogma about uh, what makes constitutional law right now as a part of our debate as a country. There's atheistic dogma, there's political dogma. So, uh, I would suggest that we need to choose our dogma carefully, to think it through, and to consider how well is our dogma rooted in reality. Choose your dogmas well, because they will shape your behavior. They'll affect your thinking. And they will lead in many ways to your destiny. Uh, Consider these dogmas, these dogmatic statements. Any of these you believe in or do you adhere to? All religions are equal and essentially teach the same thing. That's a dogma. That's a dogma. Jesus is the unique Savior of the world. 
That's a dogma. The only truth I believe in is what can be scientifically verified. That's a dogma. The primary way out of poverty is through education. That's a dogma. My country, right or wrong? If you don't love it, leave it. That's a dogma. Christianity is primarily about living a good moral life. That's a dogma. It's okay to do, do it my way as long as I don't hurt anyone else. That's a very popular dogma today. Any of those dogmatic statements express your dogma this morning? There's only one. There's only one of those dogmas that I adhere to that expresses fully what I believe and why I get up in the mornings and why I do what I do. And it's quite a dogmatic statement. The Jesus is the unique Savior of the world. Now, that's quite, a, that's quite a statement. It takes a lot of audacity to make a statement like that. That may be your dogma, or it may not be your dogma. Dogmas can be true. Dogmas can be false. And any dogma that we have is worth exploring. A dogma that you can't question isn't worth having. And so that's why we're entering into this series of messages on faith questions. We're taking a good, long look at some of the essential, central dogmas of the Christian faith. And whether you are someone that is exploring or seeking or wondering or rooted and grounded in these dogmas, I hope you'll look at these in a new and fresh way. I hope you will join Pastor Jason on Wednesday nights and look at those questions more in depth. And if you're a teenager, I hope you'll join Tim Smith on Wednesday nights as our teenagers are doing the same thing. Now, we in the Christian faith, and let me say this morning, I don't intend to be dogmatic about my dogma. That is, it's interesting that Jesus was not dogmatic in the sense that he didn't hold any position of authority. He didn't force anyone to believe in him. Uh, he didn't insist on his own way. He's very much different than the kind of dogmatic leaders that we are seeing in our world. And in the great clash 
of dogmas that are spilling out in ways that produce violence and divisiveness. It is very easy, friends, for you and I to fall into those kind of cultural mindsets. But I do want to commend you in a dogmatic fashion the dogma that Jesus Christ is the unique Savior of the world. I want to commend to you that the world needs to embrace and adhere to that dogma. And I'm going to share with you four primary ways this morning in which we as Christians historically have come to shape dogma where we're not pulling this out of the thin air or we're not adhering to the idea that truth is just whatever you choose to make it be or truth is always being reinvented or that every generation has to create its own set of tenets and faith. Um, we want to suggest to you this morning there's four primary ways that historically Christians have come to the orthodox belief that is centered in Jesus Christ. One is natural revelation. You look at the creation and you begin to see something about God. That creation and nature itself tells us something about the awesomeness of God, the beauty of God, the majesty of God, the power of God, the orderliness of God. We see something about creation and the scripture says that does not creation itself teach you about the glory of God. Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, said that there were two primary things that compelled him to believe in the divinity, the starry sky above and the moral law within. And so there is this natural revelation that every human being made in the image of God have been fashioned with, that we are given a conscience. And we're giving a sense of creation itself teaches us something about God. And yet creation itself is not something that we can just simply worship, nor should we. But creation and nature has its limitations. A horrific hurricane hits, or a massive earthquake, or a raging tornado and wipes out and devastates lives, and we can begin to wonder, well, why God? Is this rather just a whimsical display of your wishes and your will? So natural revelation is one of those things that tells us something about God, but it isn't sufficient. The second is Holy Scripture. It is the official United Methodist belief that the Bible contains everything necessary for salvation and is the authority of faith and practice. That's what we officially believe, that there are the historic 66 books that are in this canon of Scripture where we believe that God moved persons, 
by the Holy Spirit to write the stories and the words that are there to reveal to us about this God. So Holy Scripture is a second primary way that we believe God has taken the initiative to reveal God's self. There's a third area and a fourth area that I want to focus on primarily this morning because it keeps getting more personal and more real to us. And the third and what is central to our faith is that God's Word became flesh. That God didn't send us simply a principle or a precept that God sent us a person. And so did the question How do we know what God is like? (laughs) How do we know that? Jesus Christ said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So when you frame an image, your image of God, who do you go by or what do you go by? Pastor Jake was sharing uh, last week about a little girl in a class, and everyone was asked to draw something, and she said, I'm going to draw God. And someone said, you can't do that. No one knows what God's like. And she said, well, they will in a minute. (laughs) Well, in a minute, if you had a minute to draw your image of God, This is so critically important. What would you go by? Who would you go by? You know, without Jesus, I tend to draw an image. You probably probably draw an image based on your experiences in life and your parents. And while if you, like me, have had good parents, my image of God based simply upon my experience and upon my parental relationships will be somewhat inconsistent, will will be somewhat moody, will be somewhat uh, authoritative or harsh, and yet good morally solid if I was to write the image of God based on my father. But if I was to base the image of God on my mother, That image might be too passive, might be too placating, would be tender and compassionate, and yet incomplete. It is the witness of the historic Christian faith that when we see Jesus, we see God. This morning, I want us to look at the Scripture together. In Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 20, I invite you to look into your Bible right now because I'm going to be looking into mine. So you can grab the Bible in front of the pew in front of you, or you can look at the Bible you brought, or you can tap into your electronic device and scroll down and find it. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. And what we're looking at is this New Testament book that includes this particular description of who Jesus is, of what the earliest Christians adhered to believe about Jesus, and why Jesus shapes our theology as the central person of human history and our faith. 
And this is a particular section of Scripture that many people believe was a hymn. So the early Christians, when they gathered for worship, and the Apostle Paul wrote this, he was perhaps borrowing actually from a hymn that the Scriptures were sung before they became Scriptures at all. Look at these profound words that Jesus has that is said of Scripture written by the Apostle Paul about Jesus. Verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, that does not tell us, look at those scriptures, just look at it. That is not telling us that God looks like some Jewish male. For God is neither male nor female. But it is telling us. You look at the character of Jesus Christ. You see the character of God. In the next verse, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. This is not telling us that Jesus is simply the spitting image of God. It's telling us that he was God that he is God, that he has come to make visible what was invisible. And he has authority over all things. He was the creator. The reason that changing the traditional names of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, does not work for me, even though I said earlier that God is neither male nor female, and calling God creator, redeemer, sustainer, is that it reduces God to some functionality and it suggests to us that only the Father was active in creation. Because this scripture right before your eyes this morning tells us that God in Jesus Christ was active in creation, that he is also the creator. And that the Holy Spirit in other verses says that the Spirit was active in creation. And this scripture, this hymn of the early church in our great faith tradition proclaims that all things were not just simply made by Christ, but for Christ. It's for his glory. Going on, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I don't know about you, but it seems to me the world is becoming unraveled. And it is in Christ that the world, when he is supreme, things hold hold together. I went down to the monastery this week, and I go down there every month or six weeks or so because I have to do soul work because there's so many things that come unraveled in me. And in my soul work, what happens is when I give God time, when I give Christ time, what does he do? He puts me back together. (laughs) I only find that in Jesus that I'm able to hold my stuff together. I'm I'm able to keep my moods together, my thoughts together, my attitudes together, my behavior together. For in Jesus Christ, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Some people ask me, are you the head pastor? I say, no, we don't have a head pastor, but if you want to have a head pastor, it's Jesus. People ask me, well, what, what, what keeps this church running? Who, who runs this church? Well, how does this work? Is it the, is it the pastors? Is it, is it the staff? Is it, is it the board? Is it the, the lay leaders? And I, I say, it's Jesus. And what I've noticed about the church, this church and any church, that when Jesus is given the supremacy, things are a whole lot easier than when he's not. In fact, when things get a little bit more difficult than they need to be, I'm thinking, oh, something's a little wacky here. <laughs> Somewhere along the way, Jesus isn't Lord, which is the earliest creed of the church, by the way. Jesus is Lord. That's a good creed to live by. <laughs> For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That when we see God and we see the presence of Jesus, we see the fullness and the manifestation of what God is like through the power of the Holy Spirit that lived and worked in Jesus' life. Even Jesus, the human being, would not have been fully living out the fullness of God apart from the fullness of the Holy Spirit. For Jesus was baptized in the Holy Spirit as a human being, and we must be too. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether thrones, whether things on earth or things in heaven, in making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Look at those words. That's a dogma I commend to you. If you've got a better dogma to live by, if you've got a better dogma to root your life in, I want to hear about it. But that is the dogma I stake my life on. And that is a dogma that will serve us well. That it is through Christ and the Spirit of Christ that He brings reconciliation in all things. He wants to bring all things in heaven and earth together. And He does it at great cost through the blood of the cross. Jesus Christ is not simply the cosmic Christ. The cross is the cosmic cross by which Jesus becomes the unique Savior of the world. On Tuesday this week, we will celebrate the 17th anniversary of 9-11. And there are two images that come to mind, particularly that day, I suspect most of us in this room remember where we were when we heard the news or saw the news of that horrific event. And one of the images that, that keeps bearing in mind is the image, obviously, those horrific images of the, of the planes going to the towers. Those are implanted in my consciousness. But there's another image that's just as strong, and that's the image of the cross. It's the image of the cross that stood over the devastation of 9-11 at ground zero. It was the cross that emerged actually from the framework of one of the buildings that was left. 
It, was, it is the cross that stands over the wrecks of time. And it is the cross that stands at ground zero of every event in your personal life. And it is through the cross and through the firstborn that was raised from the dead, Jesus Christ, that you can withstand and you can move forward and you can live your life. So the beliefs that we talk about today are not merely beliefs, but they are realities that we live into. Well, there's one, there's that fourth primary revelation that I want us to point to this morning, and that's the inner witness of the Spirit. Now, how in five minutes can I do justice to the work of the Holy Spirit? Help me, Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the person of God. The Holy Spirit takes the Spirit of Christ and He makes us like that. The Holy Spirit that lives inside of each of us that are baptized and claim our faith in Christ come to know God in a personal way, a living way, so that the power of Christ and the power of the Spirit becomes the power that lives in us. The mind and the thoughts of Christ become the minds and thoughts in us. And it's through the Holy Spirit that the dogma of Christ is confirmed. Now I invite you to look with me in Romans chapter 8. Look at that book with me, Romans 8. And we're going to look at verse, four verses only that speak of the work of the Holy Spirit and why this is so important in our understanding of who God is. Verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. So... You know you're a person of the Spirit when there's a presence inside of you that is stronger than your conscience. And it manifests, it's, it's manifested in different ways. But being a child of God doesn't mean you believe all the right things, but that you come to believe in Christ and accept Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, you become known to God and God knows you in a personal way. You're led by the Spirit. It's like an inner GPS system. And the Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. So many of us live in fear. Many of us are afraid to die. Some of us are afraid to live. We're afraid. We live in fear. We're, we're in fear of a judgmental, condemning, condemning God. We're fearful of other people. But as the spirit you receive rises, fear goes down. Spirit rises more in your life, the, the fear goes down. We're no longer a, a slave to fear. But rather the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and we cry, Abba, Father, where all the rights and privileges of being the Son in Jesus Christ becomes us as sons and daughters of God. 
His Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. There's the inner witness. There's the inner assurance. There's the peace of God. There's the presence of God. But there's that witness of the spirit that, yes, you are a child of God. And now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So the Holy Spirit adopts us into the family. Every person that's ever been adopted has to deal with the reality of rejection. Our oldest son was adopted. And there was a time where, you know, he, he said to me, I'm, I'm, you're not my father. I'm not going to call you father. And I said, you don't, you don't have to. And he was going through that stuff. But I got, God gave me the words to say, but, you know, I want you to know. that Danny... Uh, That doesn't change the way I feel about you. You don't have to call me father. But I'll still know you as son. I said, you know, Alexander and Jonathan, they just came the natural way. I was stuck with them. But I chose you. You're hearing this adoption stuff? We've been adopted into the family of God. To Jesus Christ, the firstborn, Jesus chooses you as his daughter, as his son, adopted, co-heirs with Christ, that all the rights and privileges that are Christ belongs to you. Welcome to the family. And today... I have a wonderful relationship with my adopted son. And I love him just as much as I love my other children. Can you believe this? Can you believe this, that God the Father loves you just as much as he loves Jesus? Can you believe that? I hope you can. Because that is, my friends, my brothers and sisters, the dogma of the Christian faith. And I commend it to you. I invite you to come back next week as we explore why is the Bible the book for me. I invite you to come be a part of Pastor Jason's class on Wednesday nights or as a teenager in Tim's class. And I invite you, if the Holy Spirit has borne witness with your spirit this morning, to open up your heart and your spirit and to let Christ come into your life fully. And just go ahead and say the words, Abba, Father, Daddy. And next Sunday, we're going to have 
a service of baptism for all those who wish to be baptized and have never been baptized by immersion or by sprinkling to be baptized in the Christian faith and initiated into the family of God. This morning, as we now join in this song, we worship God and we enter into the great dance that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are doing together as the children of God. <laughs> 